Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. This is the audio-only podcast. I've had a problem with my notebook. The screen has gone all flickery, so I've dropped it in for repair. I'm using a backup notebook, which has no attachment for the video. So, no problem. We are back to our roots, baby. Now, forewarned is forearmed, and this podcast may not be for everyone. And uh, the reason for that is that this was a um, uh, this was something that I learned about myself on vacation. It may not be for everyone because it was um, a. <laughs> I to put this. It was a hitherto suspected but unproven reservoir of bitterness within me. So, and it's got nothing to do with the listeners this time. <laughs> not that I'm bitter towards my listeners, but uh, it's about a distant history. And I'm not uh, intending to make it a tale of woe or anything like that, but I think that you forewarned is forearmed. I mean, I'm going to complain and uh, be bitter. So if this is not to your taste, then don't listen, of course. Huh? Forewarned is forearmed. So when I was on vacation and walking along the beach for reasons that I cannot recall, I talked with Christina about what I would consider the darkest phase in my life, which was shortly after... My family moved to Canada. My uh, mother went to Germany for, I don't know, another one of her recreational surgeries. And my brother was sent to England, where he ended up staying for over two years to stay with relatives. Relatives who had a dog, uh, cousins to play with, a big house, money, food, uh, and pop, and all of these great things. I was sent to stay with a friend of mine's grandparents, said friend, uh, later died oddly young at the age of 15 or so of a heart defect. And I didn't know these grandparents at all. I was just sort of stuck there for the summer. And one of the fundamental questions that began me on this quest, which I've mentioned before, is why or why would we have been up? Why would my um, went to my aunts and uncles in England to a uh, very nice house with you know, not perfect people, but it sure was better than the place I was sent to where I spent a couple of months. Basically, the grandmother was dying and it was a rather grim environment in a little apartment. And that's where I spent a couple of months not really doing anything or having contact with anyone or having any money, even for bus fare. And uh, it really was a rather, <laughs> a rather unpleasant time. And what came out of that when my mother came back from Germany, as I've mentioned before, she just sort of ceased to function. Uh, she ceased to get out of, beds, uh, out of bed. Uh, she just hit a, a catastrophically depressive episode from which she never recovered. Uh, you can, you know, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And what happened was my brother was in England. None of my relatives ever phoned to find out how I was doing. Uh, nobody uh, seemed to lift a finger or, or maybe they cared, but, you know, what's the difference between caring and not caring? Well, it's no difference at all, really. <laughs> it's all just talk. So my mother sort of just completely ceased to function, uh, and I would just sort of bring her tea in the morning before I would go to school, and then I would come home and make her another tea at lunch and try and get her to eat something, but she just sort of turned her head away and wouldn't get out of bed. This went on for quite some time. And eventually she did sort of manage to stagger out of bed for a little while, but then after that uh, she was institutionalized. And I don't believe it was voluntarily. Uh, I don't know the details of it, of course. And I would go and visit her in the institution. So it wasn't that social services and her doctor and so on, it's not that they didn't know that she had children or anything like that. 
but basically I was absolutely, completely and totally left to fend for myself. And my brother was back uh, at this point, but it was a very sort of dark time. I was continually stressed because we kept getting eviction notices. I was working a whole bunch of jobs. I was trying to do school. Uh, it was just a, a mess all and uh, not, uh, not pleasant, not fun in any way, shape, or form. And I had some friends back then who uh, my brother called them yabos, which is sort of like lower, low-rent sort of people. And they were. I mean, no question, right? I had one guy who was uh, uh, verbally abusive towards his mom. He also ended up dying in his teens, uh, actually, I think just after his teens, of a motorcycle accident. He was uh, very comfortable with risk in a way that I just wasn't. So I fell in with a crew where if we needed a bike, we would just go and steal the parts from people's backyards, you know, a wheel here, a chain there, and so on, sort of build a bike because we had no money and no way to access it. And we wanted stuff, and we really felt, I mean, it really was a Lord of the Flies situation. I felt very much in a state of nature, and this puzzled me for many years, because I'm a pretty, I mean, as an adult at least, I feel like sort of trying to focus pretty heavily on morality and all that. I went through a moral phase in my very early teens, and when I wanted a computer, I went to the local fence in school and said, here's what I want, if you get it from me, I'll pay you X, because I couldn't afford to buy a computer, but I really wanted a computer. So basically, I was more than happy to take a stolen computer. This never occurred, of course, but it's sort of interesting to me that I had no external standards of reference for morality during this, this time period. And I think I sort of tripped over something that is of value or of use. And I, I knew that I had done so because of the aforementioned reservoir of bitterness, which I'd like to dump on you, if that would be all right. <laughs> Get an umbrella! No, I think, it's, I think it's useful. Perhaps you went through something similar, or if not, it might at least help you understand certain aspects of the tendency towards criminality, which I definitely possessed at the time. First of all, the reason that my brother and I were separated, as I've sort of come to understand later in life, was my mother had been uh, very abusive towards us, and I was the guy who had nothing to lose. Right? I was the person, I was the kid who had nothing to lose, because I've never abused uh, anyone in my life, and... I, I was abused, I mean, fairly continually through my childhood by both my mother and my brother. So naturally, the reward for me being the truth teller was to be isolated from anyone who could do anything about the abuse. So my brother got sent to uh, a much better place than I did to stay for a couple of years and missed uh, a lot of the hellish misery that went on where we just had no money whatsoever and uh, were constantly wheedling and bargaining about rent and I couldn't answer the doorbell or the phone. Just a horrendous time. But it was safe to send my brother away to these relatives in England because he wasn't going to tell anyone, because he was a participator, and uh, I must say a rather enthusiastic participator in the abuse. So he's not going to talk about the abuse because it would implicate himself. I, on the other hand, would have probably have talked about it if I'd uh, established any kind of connection with anyone outside the family. And this is a pretty key thing. I mean, if you've gone through this kind of stuff, Isolation from outsiders is very, very important. And you're only allowed really to have relationships with those who are abusive or corrupt or anything like that. And you can't form attachments with outsiders who might be able to help in any sort of, uh, any sort of way. So this is one of the reasons why when we, uh, shortly before I hit puberty, uh, we were moved to a new country. Why? Why were we moved to a new country? Well, because... Fundamentally, my mother was afraid that we were going to tell people about the abuse. Uh, we had relatives in England. Uh, we were close to uh, more relatives in Ireland. So why were we moved to Canada? Why move to Canada from England didn't make any sense <laughs> other than 
this continual need to hide. And if you have experienced this kind of abuse in your family, when you look back over it, I think you can find an enormous amount of indicators or, or, or hints, or more than hints, about the frenetic energy which is expended in a silent, subterranean way to keep you from telling anyone about what's going on. And this is why I say that uh, you know parents are, yes, they know that it's wrong, and they know that you, that you can talk, and the amount of effort that is put into avoiding this, including the circles of people that you move in, and the implicit or explicit pressure on you not to talk, uh, moving you around, keeping you disoriented, keeping your self-esteem low, uh, all of this kind of stuff is, is all focused on making the victim silent, keeping the victim silent. So I, the, the sort of two major events that occurred around this time sort of ripped up and moved to Canada for no real reason. It wasn't like there was a big job here. It wasn't like, I mean, we had one relative out here who was completely deranged, a German guy, half-brother of my mother's. But what was the point? Well, the point was to keep the abuse uh, in hand, right? To keep the abuse uh, able to continue. Unfortunately, though, uh, I think my mother, and she once said, you know, I want to, we moved to Canada to, for a new life, to get a new start. It was like, new start from what? I had friends at school. I was doing okay, uh, other than at home. A new start? Well, the new start was for my mother, and she wanted to go and have a new start, and who knows what vows she had made to herself with regards to her children in the depths of the night. But the doubt, no matter where you go, well, there you are, and you don't get to flee your internals by shifting your externals. So what happened was I was exhibiting, and this is certainly the case through my childhood as a whole, I was exhibiting signs which were not hugely subtle. I was exhibiting signs of being abused, right? I mean, I was, uh, I was, I was a fairly good cover in that I was a fairly peppy kid, but I never did any homework. Uh, I almost never listened in class. I just sort of scraped by until I got to university where I applied my skills. I had the freedom then to sort of focus on what I wanted to do and then I began to really churn my way through in a very pleasant way the stuff that I really wanted to learn about which was ironically philosophy and ethics. But uh, I came to school with clothing. Uh, I had uh, body odor. When I hit puberty, as before, a friend of mine's father took me aside and said, you know, it's time for you to wear deodorant because you're beginning to really smell. I mean, I'm certainly grateful that he did it but the question of course then which would be logical for this guy who was a doctor and knew probably something, a little bit of something about families, children of his own. The question, of course, for him would have been, well, A, why are you over here every day hiding out? Who are you hiding from? And B, uh, why is it that nobody in your family is telling you anything about personal hygiene? And it's you, because you don't smell yourself. It's not something that I'd noticed myself, but it was something that was quite, uh, quite important, I think. There were other times when, uh, I remember this when we were quite young, that my mother would leave to go places, right, to go sort of foreign uh, cities and so on, because she had an, a dating ad in, uh, oh, I'm sure it was some crappy place like the National Enquirer, if memory serves me right. And she would go to, I remember one time she went to Houston for two weeks and left her in $40 on which to survive. Sort of two young teenage boys... I think I was 12 and my brother was 14 or something like that. Again, the chronology gets a little hazy after so many years. But, of course, we spent it in the first couple of days, and then we had no choice but to hang around friends' places around dinner time, hoping for an invitation. And where we would get one, it would be great, and where we wouldn't get one, we'd just go hungry. But this, of course, would be another interesting question. Again, these are not wildly subtle signs 
that something is awry. Uh, certainly our friends all knew, and our friends, I guess, didn't tell our parents. And this kind of stuff as a whole is just kind of into. I remember one time, uh, my mother had a fetish for nakedness, and, uh, and this was just creepy all around, which I'm not going to get into much detail, but friends were over one night, and my mother sort of strolled down the hallway outside the door, buck naked. And this, of course, put a bit of a crush on the conversation, but nobody talked about anything. Again, here's an indication that something's kind of awry in the household. So just running through a brief list of people who had knowledge of problems in Casa de Molyneux, uh, teachers, uh, friends, parents, my doctor, my mother's doctor, social workers who handled my mother's institutionalization, all of the psychiatrists and psychologists and staff at the institution, at the institution uh, who, uh, and of course the people I signed in, I sent out, they were perfectly aware that I was there, it wasn't a mystery. And my friends, of course, and, and uh, extended relationships, uh, sorry, the extended family, uh, everybody who was in England uh, who knew that the kids had been separated and never once inquired as to where I'd been shipped off to and why the brothers would be separated, or at least not to my knowledge, certainly never communicated to me about it. Uh, my father, uh, my father's new wife, everybody knew that this was a family, let's just say, beyond crisis, right? a family where things had stopped functioning. The superintendent, who uh, I, would, I would be sent to answer the door and explain that the check would be coming in a day or two, and he, of course, offered that something was desperately awry uh, in the house. Um, anyway, he said coaches when I was on sports teams, all this kind of stuff. Like, there was an enormous plethora of people who were perfectly aware that something very awry was occurring in, uh, in my life. And this is something that I think is relatively important to, uh, to understand. Society as a whole doesn't be shit about children. Now, it wasn't that I was like a difficult, angry child. I really wasn't. My nature has always been relatively sunny, though, with a slightly ferocious edge, which surprises some people. Uh, not ferocious in terms of, like, abusive, but uh, firm, which surprises people who get a little confused by jokey happy Steph and then come across, uh, uh, you know, firm and resolute Steph and are a little surprised, as am I sometimes. But it became very clear to me that it certainly did shape my values, and it certainly did shape my perception of society, my perception of society, because anybody can say anything. But your direct experience of what it's like in society is something that's quite important. So I began to shoplift. Now, in hindsight, yeah, I wanted the stuff, and I, you know, they say you don't take pleasure in things that are stolen. That's for me, was not true, right? I stole some, an electric train. I stole a remote-controlled car set and uh, enjoyed enjoyed them. I didn't really feel that it was a big problem. Uh, I also did the practice, which younger people wouldn't understand, of switching the price tags on things and getting them for cheaper, and all of these kinds of things. So, I mean, you can't do that with barcodes now, but this was possible in the past before this sort of stuff existed. To those who used to own Mr. Gameway's Ark, I'm sorry. I really am. So... Of course, my mother would see me with this new stuff and wouldn't have any questions, wouldn't have any comments. My friends would come over and play with it, uh, wouldn't have any questions, wouldn't have any comments. And this was all, I think, very significant. So I really kind of got, at a fundamental level, that people aren't good. Now, surely, if a child is in distress, I mean, and, and nobody does anything, and a child is in obvious distress, and, and hundreds of people know about it, and nobody does anything, like not even makes a phone call, doesn't do anything, then it was very clear to me that 
coming to any kind of aid, even when that aid is as simple as making a phone call saying, I think there's family in distress here, I think somebody needs to do something about it, whether it's to the United Way or some other charity or even to the government. I mean, because this was before I was obviously an anarcho-capitalist, before I would even understood anything in depth about philosophy. So that would have meant something, that somebody cared enough to do something as simple as a phone call to get some help towards this sort of situation, but nobody did anything. Nobody lifted a finger. Now, our vaunted social security system basically saw a child, 13 or so, who was coming to visit his insights course. They knew for a fact that there was no father because they do extensive interviews when you get into these sorts of situations, as I've learned about from Christina later on. Not through my own experience, at least not yet. So they knew that there was no father. They knew that there was no other provider. They knew that there was no extended family. And here's a child coming in, and nobody does anything. Nobody says, what's, uh, what's going on for you? How's, uh, how's it hanging, dude? <laughs> dude, little dude. I mean, uh, your primary caregiver has been institutionalized. What's going on? And this, of course, is a situation where if had I been less resourceful and less active and had I not taken on three jobs and had my brother not worked and and had we not taken in roommates and had we not done all of these highly resourceful things then I mean we literally could have ended up homeless I mean this was sort of the risk that was uh, was occurring this is how this kind of stuff occurs and what would that have meant right because people didn't know I mean I don't think they knew that uh, we had these resourceful capacities and were willing and able to do these kinds of things to survive so if we had ended up homeless what would that have meant to people? Uh, would have meant their own virtue. And, of course, helped me in a really brutal kind of way. But this really helped me to understand that people just talk about being good. Now, people just talk about being good and caring and responsible. And it also gave me, I think, fairly solid emotional ammunition to be skeptical of people who talk about the virtue of the government. I mean, I could have some sympathy for... People who, I don't know, it's just easier to ignore a, an imploding, destructive family in your son's orbit through a friend. It's sort of easy to ignore that. The people who are actually paid to help uh, people, people in the social services, the people who around when I was institutionalized, the doctors, the social workers, and so on, I mean, it's sort of paid for this, right? And they, none of them give a shit. None of them gave a shit about it. Nobody uh, even asked or phoned or anything like that. Uh, when I was away from school, uh, nobody, uh, I got one phone call. Uh, because, of course, sometimes I was just exhausted from working and so on. But uh, no, no caring, no concern. I, I had a swim, uh, as I mentioned before, I, had a, I was on a swim team and I needed seven bucks and I just kept lying about it, not having any money. I even remember looking under the sofa cushions and so on to try and find some money. I just we couldn't come up with seven bucks. There's like not even a hope in hell of being able to do that. And nobody said, gee, that seems pretty rough, kid. Like, what's, uh, what happened was I kind of got eye rolling and, oh, well, try and remember next time and so on. And this, I mean, I'm not sort of don't mean to laugh. It's certainly enough years have passed by now that I can look at it with a sort of grim humor, which is that everybody talks about being good in the abstract, but then their child uh, who's genuinely suffering and going through an extraordinarily difficult time and is facing the prospect of losing his home and, and so on, of really falling off the cliff as far as society goes, and nobody lifts a finger. And there were rich parents around. I, I sort of moved through a bunch of different social circles. It wasn't just I was in, sort of in the dregs of the welfare people. Uh, I had friends whose fathers were professors. I had doctors. I had friends whose fathers were lawyers. I had a father ran the Toronto Stock Exchange and had a huge hand. So it wasn't that I was around other really broke people who couldn't sympathize because they were in the same boat. I mean, I moved through 
the social circles pretty adroitly because, of course, I had verbal skills and intelligence, so could have reasonable debates even with friends' parents. And nobody, uh, nobody did anything. Nobody did anything. Nobody asked a question. Nobody lifted a finger. Nobody made a phone call. And this was true among those who were in the social circle and friends of my parents and so on and extended relatives and not so extended relatives, my father, everyone, my mother's doctor who institutionalized her never sort of sort of called the kids in and said, okay, well, now that I put your mom in an institution, what do you guys feel like uh, is a good, a good way to proceed? Because, you know, food, is, uh, food and shelter are relatively important in Canada, particularly when it's minus fucking 30. But none of this, uh, none of this occurred, of course. This gave me a very uh, skeptical, and but but sorry, uh, even the more uh, fundamentally focused people who should have, whose job it was to do this, right? The workers, the psychologists, and did nothing. So what it gave me was an incredible sense of people's just myopic self-interest and a desire to avoid any kind of conflict, desire to avoid looking at anything negative. And this was as true of government workers as it was of private people, as it was of parents, of relatives, of friends, of teachers, of coaches, of people I came in contact with, of employers uh, who didn't sort of ask why I was there at 3 o'clock on a school day because I had to actually leave school early to get to one of my jobs. So I sort of negotiated with my teachers to leave early whenever the class fell at the end of the day because I had to get to a job by, I think, 3.15 or whatever. And the school ended at 3.25, and so I had to leave at 2.30, whatever. So I negotiated all of that. And, well, I didn't negotiate it. I just said, this is what I have to do. And nobody said, well, why? Nobody said, well, why, why is it that you, you have to do this? And teachers, of course, and th- th- this was not the worst aspect of it. And this is where the bitterness comes. So uh, be, 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 be. the worst aspect of it was that people blamed me. This was the worst aspect of it. Not didn't give a shit, but they blamed me for it. And this was a consistent and universal phenomenon. So I'm 13 years old and I can't come up with seven bucks. And, of course, the people who run the swim team just roll their eyes and assume that I'm cheap or lazy or forgetful or whatever. Not asking a single fucking question about why somebody who's dedicated and hard work enough to join a swim team and attempt to win seems to magically forget every day seven bucks. It's not brain surgery, people. Uh, Teachers consistently blamed me and rolled their eyes when I came in without having done my homework. My mom called police on me twice, if I remember right. Because, uh, hey, believe it or not, I had a bit of a temper at this point in my life. I had the normal hormones of teenagers, the uh, uh, break, complete break with any belief in the virtue of my society, which was occurring more at an unconscious true self level, and uh, heavy abuse from mother and brother, and more subtle abuse from a situation who simply said to me, as the report, basically, you're lazy. If effort matched ability, as one teacher said, you'd be an A+. Plus. It's like, yeah, dude, any, any thoughts as to why that might be occurring? Well, no. Everybody just gave me this infinite plethora of free will and said, well, he can do whatever he wants. The fact that his mother's been institutionalized, he's working a couple of jobs, stressed out about having a place to live and having enough to eat. Ah, that's nothing to do with it. It's nothing to do with it. He's just lazy. Lazy and unfocused. Doesn't seem to want to work. Just a bad kid. Well, actually, I didn't say that. To be fair, it wasn't that anyone said you're a bad kid. I was just considered to be goofy, irresponsible, and lazy kid. So some guy with great sneakers, some kid with great sneakers, is, uh, is uh, sprinting down the field. Uh, father's a professor, has all the access to books, and has a future, and, and every, no, no stress about money, and doesn't have to work extra jobs, or doesn't have to work any jobs, damn it. 
some kid in great sneakers running down the field, and they're like, look at that kid fly. A kid in concrete carrying an anvil is struggling to step past the starting line, and people are saying, stop being so lazy, damn it, just run. Look at that other kid. The abuse was inevitable, of course, from those who weren't directly physically or verbally abusing me. The abuse was inevitable because that is what people do to cover up their own guilt. They have to blame me for not doing the uh, socially acceptable or required things in school or, or in other sort of, sort of areas of my life. They have to blame me because otherwise they actually start to feel some empathy and sympathy, which might propel them, might propel them to actually think that something needs to be done might propel them into action. People blame others and fantasize that someone's doing something because they feel enormously guilty uh, for their inaction. To deal with that guilt, they project that guilt onto me. So they try to make me feel guilty for being lazy or irresponsible or goofy or forgetful or whatever. They want me to feel guilty for my circumstances in order to assuage their own guilt and in order to say that they're applying tough love to this situation. Well, he's got to learn responsibility somehow. God damn it. You try negotiating your way out of homelessness in Canada where homelessness can kill you and tell me then a little bit something about responsibility and taking initiative and not being forgetful. But to be more pointed about a particular incident, uh, I did shoplift from time to time. It wasn't a lot. But uh, at one point, a friend of mine and I were... Uh, downtown. This is a guy who liked to go window shopping, and just oddly enough, I sort of remember that we'd have debates about window shopping because I'd say, well, we don't have any money, so what's the point of going window shopping? It's like, oh, just to see what we could have if we are going to ever have money. It's like, well, we don't have any money, and we're not about to get any, so what's the point? It's uh, torturing. But we went downtown, and uh, we were hungry, and we had uh, you know, no money. This is back when it was like 20 cents for bus fare, so we could get downtown, but we didn't have any money to eat. So we went into a grocery store. He, uh, he stole a bag of M&M's so we could have something to eat because, of course, we were all about the nutrition, as every teenager is. Young teenager. I think I was um, guessing 13 at this point. And what happened was he was nabbed by the store owner, and like the solid, <laughs> solid bro that he was, he fingered me immediately, and uh, we were both uh, hauled into the manager's office. And the manager, of course, was livid. And, yeah, I mean, like, shrinkage is an, is an issue in retail and, I guess, in a grocery store. So he called the cops and had us arrested for shoplifting, for stealing uh, the bag of M&Ms. And the cop uh, came in, and uh, we were dragged off down to the police station where we were fingerprinted and booked. And uh, there was a, a stern lecture and so on. And then my mother was called. And, anyway, there was just a whole... Uh, mess around it. And oddly enough, my mother was livid on the phone, but then was never, we sort of haven't mentioned the incident again, which, I mean, who knows why. We can sort of figure that one out when we have a free month or so. But here's what I kind of got <laughs> when I was on vacation, and here's how amazingly insistent these emotional experiences are until you kind of get them. And right? here's how just amazingly um, inviolable these emotional energies are until you sort of understand them and release them. So I thought I would share them with you. This is not something to inflict. This is something which I think might uh, help you understand. You know, not that you care that much about how I came to my opinions, but given that people who are this far along in the podcast series probably have similar opinions, here's uh, something that may help you uh, in terms of understanding where your feelings came from with regards to your skepticism and social values and so on. So this basically was, was my experience. 
society, the structure, the people, did nothing with regards to helping out a child in obvious, uh, serious, and uh, an extremity of distress. Not a phone call, not lift a finger, not have a word, not a single shred with obvious, obvious dysfunction in the environment. And it was really, I swear to God, it was hugely, hugely, hugely risky. What would have happened if I'd have ended up on the streets? What would have happened? What would have happened? Drugs, prostitution, homeless people freeze to death all the time in Toronto. I mean, this was no fucking joking matter, what was going on. Not a finger was lifted, not a shred of sympathy, not a word, for years, among hundreds of people. So, and professionals, paid to help from the... Nobody lifted a finger. However, what provoked society to leap into action to deal with the problem? Was it a child facing homelessness, massive distress, institutionalized mother, no resources, no money, eviction in winter? No, good Lord, no. That doesn't cause society to leap into action to deal with the problem. What causes society to leap into action to swag a fucking M&M's? A bag of fucking M&M's. No disrespect to M&M's, quite tasty. A child sinking in a whirlpool of financial, emotional, physical, and familial destruction. A clearly regarded, decent mind going wanting for any sort of sustenance, emotional, financial, intellectual, any kind. Nobody will even make a fucking phone call. But a bag of M&Ms, my friend, that prompts a phone call, the frightening act of being arrested, the more frightening act of having a crazy and violent mother told of the arrest and the fear of the brutal consequences that will result from that, the violence, the beatings. The bag of M&M took society to leap into action to deal with the problem. A child sliding into a life-threatening situation, alone, well, we don't have to lift a finger about that, do we? We don't have to make a phone call to anyone about that. We don't have to get involved in that. Children can sink into homelessness, and nobody's going to lift a finger. But, oh, my friends, there's a bag of M&Ms involved. Now we must act. And not only must we act, we must lecture this child about ethics. About responsibility, about property rights, about empathy for the store owner. And we must give him long and scary lectures about how being a bad kid can land you in jail. Well, jail would certainly have solved the threat of homelessness. And that was appalling. And this was my sort of experience with the states. When I look back on sort of why it is that I had skepticism with regards to, oh, the state is there to help, the state is there, is going to solve these problems, going to solve those problems. Well, those are all just words. Those are all just words. And I really am more empirical than that. I don't try to or tend to base my understanding of things on mere 
words. I sort of try to actually work with direct experience. That's sort of the scientific method. I think that's a, that's a good approach to determining the truth. And people can say all they want. But uh, my own personal experience is uh, across many continents. Right? I lived in three continents, England and Africa briefly and, and Canada. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of people knew about my situation to varying degrees and to significant degrees. If you say anybody, it would be thousands of people. Nobody lifted a finger in any of the countries that I was in. Even relatives who could have, uh, you know, could have done something decent. Nobody did anything. And the state, which of course is is paid and and takes tax money and so on to protect, uh, that's why you have children's services, why you have social workers, and even for the charities who are supported by the state's uh, deduction donations and so on. All of these uh, groups uh, did nothing. The state did not act to help a child. Society did not act to help a child in serious risk of going down into the bottomless depths. The society, both state-based and society-based, did nothing. Did nothing. But all of the apparatus of the state leapt into action when a bag of M&Ms was threatened. A child can sink into nothingness and nobody will lift a finger. A child can be brought down by the predators of indifference and poverty, and nobody will lift a finger. Nobody will even glance up from the newspapers as the screams and the claws commence. But when a child pilfers, or is even associated with someone who pilfers a bag of M&Ms, ah, then the stern lectures on morality commence. And if I was sort of to plan, in hindsight, these, gosh, almost 30 years ago now, 27 years ago, I would say that it was at that moment that I just kind of gave up on society. I just kind of gave up. And I guess the other times would be when my mom called the cops. I remember one cop sort of leaning over me in a menacing manner uh, when my mom had called the cops and saying, you know, well, son, what we have here is a generation gap, and you've got to learn to try and understand your mother, and you've got to, you've got to respect your mom, you've got to listen to what she says. We don't want to get called back in here and haul you off. Right? All kind of stuff. So a cop comes and uh, you have a, uh, a situation where uh, a child is, is angry and frightened and so on. And he lectures the child. He lectures the child. Why? Because the child can't do fuck all about anything. If he lectures my mom or calls child services because there's evidence of abuse... My mom can be dangerous. My mom can screw up your life. So nobody lectures my mom. Nobody confronts my mom because my mom is obviously dangerous, angry, aggressive, violent, random. Well, not totally random. (laughs) The abuse never came out. My mom can threaten people. My mom can be dangerous. My mom can make your life a living hell, as she has done for many people in her life. Myself, her doctors, uh, uh, all the other people in her life who she threatened or abused or undermined or, or whatever, right? She's just been a plague throughout her life. So my mom understood a lot more about the state than I did because she called the cops. My, my mom understood a lot more about social power and how society works than I did. Of course, she was older and she'd worked the system for many years, managed to keep the abuse uh, secret and silent. She knew. She knew she was totally safe to call the cops and frighten the hell out of me and have me lecture too about morality. Have me lecture too about morality. So when an evil abuser calls the cops, they, uh, they lecture the victim. In one rapist feel comfortable enough to call the cops when his victim is resisting him and the cops are like, yep, we'll help, we'll help hold her down and lecture to her about how she should obey her rapist. We'll give her long lectures about responsibility and obedience and morality. 
and will give her long lectures about morality as we hold her legs apart and pin her down so that she can have at her. Well, I know that that sounds like an extreme metaphor, but that is actually the situation. Except this is a long-time repeated rapist. This is not just a one-time thing. This abuse has been going on for years. So I'm lectured to about obedience to my mom, and nobody says anything about or asks me questions about, well, how did you get to this state? Well, you're screaming and crying and throwing things around. What's going on for you? Nobody, <laughs> nobody's going to ask that. Of course not. Because that would involve a confrontation with my mother. And everybody who could conceive, avoid the exception of the doctor who institutionalized her, body rapidly avoided any kind of confrontation with my mother. They sniffed predator from a distance, and that's fine. I mean, at a certain bitter level of mine, that's fine. That's fine. But then don't ever fucking lecture me about morality. If you say, well, we'd like to help these children who are going under, but frankly, we're scared of the mom, fine. No problem. Then don't lecture me about courage and ethics and morality and responsibility and, and, and uprightness and integrity and blah, blah, blah. Don't fucking complain when I'm around somebody who steals a bag of M&Ms if you're frightened of confronting some crazy woman who's abusing her children. Because I got to tell you, I think that a human life, a child's life, is a little bit more important than a bag of fucking M&Ms. And if the only time that society leaps into actions is when the M&Ms are threatened, that's fine. Then just say, well, it's not that we care about ethics, because we sure as hell don't care about ethics. Because if we cared about ethics, then we'd do something. Even the cop would say, would reasonably, I think, say, why is it, son, that you were stealing M&Ms? And I'd say, because I'm a truth teller, I'd say, hey, you know what? I'm fucking starving here. I got no food. Right? But the cop didn't say that. And this was consistent through all of my interactions with authority throughout my entire life. They lecture you on ethics. They never, of course, ask for courses. They blame you for your circumstances as a child. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that as an adult, but they blame you for your circumstances and the inevitable result of those circumstances when you're a child. Nobody ever confronts the parents because the parents can do something negative. Right? They can sue you. They can get angry. They can file a complaint. They can talk back. Everybody just picks on the weakest and calls it ethics. Oh, the child is the weakest uh, in this situation? Let's just lecture the child. When the mom comes to pick up the child, and this is, I remember very clearly, when my mom came to pick me up, the cop didn't say anything to her. Because she can do some damage to the cop. He sizes her up immediately and goes, ooh, here's a loose cannon, here's a dangerous woman, here's an angry, bitter, scary woman. Or he's a woman whose child is, uh, is uh, associated with somebody who's stealing a bag of M&Ms, and so obviously she's not a very good person. So I'm not going to lecture her, though, because she can do something. She's an adult. She can complain. She can get me tied up in court. She can file a complaint. Whatever, right? Or she can at least make the next three minutes uncomfortable and unpleasant by screaming at me and embarrassing me in public. So I'm 13 years old. I got nothing to eat. I participate in the theft of a bag of M&Ms. And the only person who gets lectured about ethics when in a society where I've ended up having to steal a bag of M&Ms to get something to eat, the only person who gets lectured to about ethics is not the mother who's violent and abusive and abandoning and not getting any help for a family that's, ca that's catastrophically imploding. The mother doesn't get lectured at all. Only the child gets lectured to. Only the child gets lectured to about ethics. Do you see where I am sort of get some of these uh, perspectives? Now, it certainly could be the case, and I'm willing to hear arguments, of course, as I always am, that, oh, Steph, you can't build an entire philosophy out of 
bitterness about particular acts that society did or didn't do 30 years ago. I totally agree. I totally agree. That's why I try to validate my empirical observations with logic. It's sort of important, right? I mean, it's why I try to validate what occurred to me with logic. It's why I don't sort of rant about things that happen to me and say, oh, well, that's it. Fuck society. Society is evil. I try to sort of say, oh, so, okay, but this was my experience. This is what happened. People talk and talk and talk about ethics. Nobody does anything to protect children. But they all say that they're good. And whenever that child does something that's sort of, quote, wrong, and of course it was wrong to steal the M&M's, no question. It was wrong to steal the, tra- the electric train. It was wrong to steal. But nobody asks where the greater sin is. How is this child ending up in this situation? I think that's uh, important. Nobody asks that question. Nobody asks about the greater sin that produces the totally minor sin. I mean, the sin of stealing a bag of M&Ms versus the sin of abusing, beating, and terrifying children, or the sin of inaction, of doing nothing about it. And doing nothing about it and then lecturing children about ethics. That's the hypocrisy. That's the vileness of it. That's the horror of it. Not that people did nothing, but people did nothing and preened and, and, and strutted around and were pompous and self-aggrandizing with regards to their own foot. And you would uh, talk to these people and say, yeah, I'm a good person. They wouldn't say, oh, yeah, fuck, I, uh, I know that there's this kid getting abused. I'm one of my son's friends, but, oh, man, I'm not doing anything about it. His mom's really crazy. She might be really dangerous. So, yeah, I'm totally willing to sacrifice this, this mom out of cowardice because something unpleasant might happen to me. There's nothing ethical about that. If you're afraid of something unpleasant happening to you from my mom, what the fuck do you think my life is like at 11 or 12 years old? Before I'm even big enough to hit her back. Not that good. There's no ethics involved in this, right? But people will continue about ethics and virtue and responsibility and lecture me on how important it was to be a good fucking person. So I really, really, really did fundamentally kind of get this situation, what society was all about. And I totally got that society had nothing to do with ethics, but society was extraordinarily pompous and self-congratulatory with regards to ethics and how virtuous everyone was. Oh, we're all so good, we care about the poor. So when people say to me, well, the government is all about helping the poor, and without the government, nobody's going to help the poor. Well... I have some empirical evidence that lasted for years and years and years across three different continents that that just isn't fucking so. And I'm not alone in that. I don't think I'm alone in that. Government's not helping any. So I'm not sure if you've had similar, (coughs) similar sort of experiences, but it is fascinating to me that this is occurring continually throughout society, within society, and I sure would like to hear from those who've gone through anything similar. It didn't have to be as dramatic, or maybe it's more dramatic. But why is it that, despite the fact that there are millions of people, billions maybe, throughout the world, who have directly experienced the hypocrisy and corruption of society? And I had a pretty large sample size. Thousands of people, three continents, a bunch of different state agencies, all the charities in the world, all the teachers... I had a pretty, it's a pretty large sample. And I don't think I just accidentally slipped through the cracks. It's a pretty large sample of society. Just watching this kid drown, going, well, I don't know, nothing's happening. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. So his mom's running around naked. He's losing weight. Can't seem to focus. Seems exhausted all the time. I'm sure everything's fine. Maybe he's got a virus. I'm sure everything's, everything's good. Oh, I don't know. I have no idea what story people told to themselves. It's incomprehensible to me what story people could tell to them, themselves. 
other than, of course, that they themselves had gone through abuse of some kind and didn't like to think about it and just avoided everything that might conceivably remind them of it, right? Which is fine. Then just say, well, I'm a coward with regards to my own history, and I have no intention whatsoever of helping any other children because it would cause too much pain with me. That's fine. You know, just be a coward, be a shithead. Don't, uh, don't help children, but then don't lecture your own children on ethics and don't, as the teachers always did, lecture me on responsibility and virtue and, and uh, integrity and blah, 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 and respect for other people, respect for their property and blah, 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 blah. Don't lecture me on all these sorts of things. And uh, do what you're doing, or rather don't do what you're not doing. So I hope that this has been helpful. Thank you so much. I look forward to your donations, and I will talk to you soon.